I'll ask you to turn in your Bibles to James chapter 1. Uh, this is Missions Month. Right, this is Missions Month and focusing on missions. Joshua referred to our giving last week. Uh, we don't usually you know, talk about that every week, but he referred to it in the right way because uh, last week was a special offering for us to give, particularly for missions. So this is Missions Month, and somehow uh, this sermon is about Missions Month, okay, indirectly. And I think that will uh, hopefully become apparent later on. We'll ask you to open your Bibles there. James chapter 1, and I'll read verses 22 through 25. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. Oh, Father, we long to be a man who is blessed in what we do. And so I pray this morning that, Lord, you would allow us to see very clearly what is it that makes a man a doer of the Word. And that though on the outside we all look the same, there can be an infinite difference internally and ultimately eternally between the man who completely understands and has been undone by the Gospel Versus the man who merely looks at the gospel and walks away. He turns away. He thinks that he has believed, but it has had no power, no effectual reality in his life. So Lord, let us be undone by this text this morning, by your word. And pray that you would raise up a church, Lord, whose greatest ambition is to know the gospel, to understand the gospel. That the gospel would become central, not peripheral. That it would be the very fire which we gather around. To warm ourselves, Lord. Thank you again for your grace and for this time. Amen. We dive immediately into our text this morning. Verse 22, James says, But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Now as we move through this text this morning, it's very important to grasp something. At the beginning we want to understand this text here is not addressed to everybody. This text is not addressed to everybody. It's not addressed... More specifically, it's not addressed to the unbeliever. It's not addressed to atheists. atheists. It's not addressed to pagans. It's not addressed to universalists. It's not addressed to to New Age spiritists. This text is directed right at the professing believer. And this is a specific message to all Christians, both men and women, young and old, who profess faith in Christ and believe in the Bible. In fact, this text is ultimately it's, a, it's, it's directed to those who hear the Word of God week after week, who go to church Sunday after Sunday, worshiping God, singing praises to God. That's who this text is addressed to. But in verse 22, we're immediately shown two kinds of people that are sitting in church, two kinds of people who are professing to be followers of Christ. There's the doer, if you will, and the the deceived. The doer and the deceived. The first person mentioned here, he's the doer. You could read it, uh, become word doers, if you will. The ESV says, be doers. Be doers. That word 
Be, it's, it's prove. Prove or be, and it's a verb. It's a present imperative, which means it's a, it's a command to a continuous, lifelong action. In other words, for the rest of your earthly life, be, be this. Now, the meaning of the word doer may seem uh, somewhat obvious. This word here means doer, maker, or one who brings into existence. Now, James uses this word four times in this letter. Three of the times are right here in verses 22 to 25. Another one in verse, chapter 4, verse 11. But the rest of the New Testament, it only uses this word two other times. Okay? Now, I ask you to track with me here because this will become important. I want to just highlight one of the other times this word is used. It's used in Romans in the same sense, but it's also used in Acts 17.28. Luke uses this word. Acts 17.28, Paul said, For in him we live and move and exist, even as some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. Now the word translated poet in Acts 17.28, it's our same word we have here in James 1.22. And the Greek word is the word poetai. And it's the same root word from which we get our word poet. Okay? Now, I'm not saying that James is literally telling us to be poets, be doers of the word. But my point is that a doer, it means more than simply one who just does. It's more than just one who does. In fact, the word here, be a doer, it's not a verb. It's a noun. The verb is to be but the noun is to what we are to be, and it's to be a doer. So to be a doer means to be a maker, to be a, a creator, if you will. So the question I propose this morning is, what is it that we're to be creating? What is it that we're to be making? What is a doer? It is someone who is, who is obedient to the will of God. Believers are living application of the truth of the living word and you are to bring forth truth through your lives or more correctly, the truth is to come through you. Now, what's a poet? A poet is simply one who brings forth, this is how I define it, a poet is one who brings forth beauty through his thoughts and therefore through his words. That's what a poet is. He brings forth beauty through thoughts and words. So, at this point, you need to disregard any you know, thought of present-day, postmodern, subjective, so-called poets who just write a bunch of you know, hogwash and you can't, you just, everyone sits around and tries to figure out what it means and no one can come up with the right answer because no, even the author doesn't know what it means. That's not what we're talking about when we're talking about poetry here. By poetry, I want you to think of King David. Right? I want you to think of the Psalms. Poetry. Concrete, objective truth. Even Shakespeare or Robert Frost. Or, if you don't know, Jason Park. Okay? Jason Park is a poet. He writes poets. He writes poems. Right. Here in verse 22, we're speaking of beauty, the beauty of truth brought forth in a believer's life. Right. That's what this text is talking about. Fruit is obedience to the word and it is this doing that is pleasing to God and it is this doing that is, it's biblical poetry, so to speak. Right. Now stick with me a little bit here. Right. 
The same root of this word is found in two other places. One of them is in Romans 1.20. Paul again writes, For since the creation of the world, his invisible, attrib- invisible attributes, eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. In the English, uh, what has been made, four words. In the Greek, it's one word. Okay. And here, the word Paul uses is poema. Poema. And you can guess what English word we derive from that. Right? Poem. Poem. Now, Romans is telling us that the world and its order is God's divine, it's God's divine poem. That's what creation is. It's God's divine poem. It's declaring, it's pronouncing, it's shouting, it's exclaiming His glory. Right? Right? Psalm, 1, or Psalm 19, right? The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. So creation, if you will, it's God's poem unfolding His glory, proclaiming it to all of creation. But Romans 1.21 says that men have taken this poem... They have taken God's declared glory and they've trashed it. They rebel against God in an attempt to rewrite God's glorious poem. Okay. Now Romans 1, 18 and on, as you know, unfolds the absolute rebellion of man against God. And in essence, we see that disobedience to the knowledge of God, disobedience to the knowledge of God, it's divine plagiarism. It's divine plagiarism against God his glory, and His plan. Man's rebellion against God is an attempt to censor what God has written. And rebellion against God's order of the world and God's word itself is to trash God's pure and holy poem and to replace it with man's own poem. So we see that's what's going on today. The world has hijacked life. They've taken their life into their own hands. Say, forget about what God says. Forget about the way God says to live my life. I'm going to rewrite the script. Oh, this is where the gospel comes in. In light of God's work, in light of our rebellion, in light of God's righteous indignation, the gospel teaches us that Christ, He has come to redeem us from the consequences of our plagiarism. He has borne the consequences Himself. The punishment we deserved for our divine censorship was placed upon Christ so that we might be restored to God's true poem, if you will. And we were once enemies, now we're friends. And it is this restoration through Christ that allows us to be partakers with God sitting at His table. This leads us to the one other last use of this poema. That's Ephesians 2.10. You guys, many of you have this verse memorized. Ephesians 2.10 says this, For we are His workmanship. We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. That word workmanship, it's that same word again, poema. Romans 1.20, Ephesians 2.10, only New Testament uses of that word. Ephesians 2.10 is declaring that Christians are God's poem, if you will. God's incredible sonnet about His massive and mighty glory prevailed through the cross of Christ 
and given to the believer. So that the gospel raises up dead people and it, it recreates them. It makes them alive. And so God says that believers, they're His workmanship. God did all the work through the power of the cross. He makes hostile sinners into new creations. He makes us trophies of His handiwork. He makes us vessels of His workmanship, declaring His mighty grace and infinite mercy. And so through the cross, it's through the cross that undoes our hostility, undoes our impotent attempt to plagiarize God's plan, hijack His word, The cross undoes us and it makes us His workmanship and it makes us men and women who want to do the Word of God. And it is this kind of infinitely glorious poem that James 1.22 ushers us to be a part of. Be doers of the Word. Be doers of the Word. Not just any word, not just some word, but the perfect, divinely inspired truth of Scripture. And so the Scripture says, this is our script This is our our living script. This is our text which we're following that we're carrying out before an audience of one. That we're carrying out before God. But it doesn't stop there. Thus far, we've come to understand James is calling us, yes, to obey the Word of God. But it's too general, right? Calling one to obey the text is, is too general. And in fact, it's because there are so many people, so many people who are exposed to religion, more importantly, more specifically, who are exposed to the Gospel, who come week after week, who sit in church, who hear messages from the Bible, It's so many that think they're following Christ when actually they're still censoring the Word of God and plagiarizing God's truth to fit their own story. So James has to get more specific. Become doers of the Word, not merely hearers who delude themselves. See, what we have here is James began with an exhortation to poetry. And now he begins to go and rail against pretense. That is the hard issue here. Poetry versus pretense. This second phrase marks the life of pretense. It's a hearer who does not obey and he's delusional in his disobedience. A hearer is being contrasted here with a doer. The word hearer in this text is being used as one who is merely an observer, a spectator, an onlooker. It's for those who think that observation is the same as participation. That's important. It's the same for the, it's the same a person who thinks that observation equals participation. But the text says that so-called believers who merely hear but do not do, they're delusional. They're delusional. The word delude, it means to miscalculate, to reason falsely. Paul used this word in Colossians 2.4. He says, I hope that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. And what is interesting, it's only used twice in the New Testament, Colossians 2.4 and then here as well. And it's a, 
the, the way that the Greek shows is that it's something that you're not supposed to allow to be done to you. Don't allow yourself to be deceived. Don't allow your mind to be swept away. To be deluded in the case of, of James 1.22, Colossians 2.4, means to willingly disregard scriptural truth and to accept or remain in error. Okay? Now, Webster defines delusion, delusional as the following. Okay, listen to this. To be delusional is a persistent false psychotic belief that is maintained despite indisputable evidence to the contrary. Delusion implies an inability to distinguish between what is real and what only seems to be real, often as the result of a disordered state of mind. So what James is saying here in James 1.22, that this deluded man, this deluded woman, they don't know the true state of their own religion. They don't know the true state of their own heart. One commentator says, the idea is that of being deceived by false logic and thus having drawn false conclusions and being deceived into thinking the mere sound of the word was enough. Now, what makes being delusional so intense is that the delusional person, he doesn't know he's delusional. This is important. We've got to grasp this here. The deluded person, he doesn't know that he's deluded. Now, someone could be very, very sick. They could be very sick. But they can still get up and they can, they can function. Right? They can walk around. They can, they can communicate normally with people. They can go to work. But all the while, their, their body and their mind is telling them, you're sick. And that person says, I know. I don't feel right. I don't feel well. I want to get better. But the deluded person... He doesn't understand that. Because the deluded person thinks that fiction is fact, but that fact is fiction. Right? And so James here, he's concerned with spiritual delusion. So he says, he, he, begins, he gives us an illustration in verses 23 and 24. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. Now, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time unfolding this. Because the point of the illustration is simply the absurdity of someone who forgets what he looks like. And at the heart of it, we need to understand that everyone has self-perception. Everyone has self-perception. Everyone has their own idea of who they are and how they perceive themselves and how they want others to perceive them and also how they think others perceive them. When a man forgets the reality of his genuine self-perception, he begins to forge his own idea about himself. If a person doesn't know who he is and he doesn't understand how others are perceiving him and he doesn't look in the mirror rightly and he forgets what he saw, he begins to forge his own self-perception about who he thinks he is, about who he wants others to think that he is. And he begins to delude himself, and he, he thinks of himself as someone other than he really is. And that's what it means to be deluded. Now, the best way I can illustrate this, what popped into my mind is American Idol. Okay? Or in the rest of Europe, what they call Superstar. Right? And you all know what I'm, what I'm going, where I'm going at. Is these people, they audition to be on this 
American Idol. They auditioned to, to sing and to dance and to put on a show. And the people who go to audition, some of these people, they're absolutely convinced that they are God's gift to, to singing. They think that they have what it takes to cut They think that they are the next American Idol. And so those three or four judges are sitting there, and this person gets up, and you've, you've seen, they start singing. And the, you watch the judges, and they're stunned. They're stunned. They, they're taken aback by what's coming out of this mouth. It's so awful, it's so horrendous, that the, the judges don't even know what to do. And that person gets done, and they, you know, they're like, they think they're just done awesome. The judges, just, the judges don't know what to do. And one guy who doesn't have a conscience, so to say, you reek. And that person, he'll just be devastated. He'll be like, what are you talking about? And the, the judges will slowly say, look, you don't, you don't understand. You have no talent. You, you, you're tone deaf. You know? And the person, they'll be so deluded that in their mind they're thinking, you are the worst judges I've ever had. You don't, you, you don't even recognize un, unbelievable singing. You don't recognize beauty. You don't recognize this incredible talent and gift that I have. But the reality is that that person, he's deceived. Well, the same applies spiritually. There are people who are blind and they cannot see what they look like. They have conjured up their own perception. They work hard at trying to pretend they are good and trying to get others to think that there is some good in them. But in the long run, they think that this, this goodness will allow them to stand before the judgment seat of God. They think that if they can just convince themselves that everything is okay and convince others, they'll stand before God and they'll be able to convince Him as well. And although there is much to laugh about on American Idol, there's nothing to laugh about when it comes to sinners who think their own hearts are righteous. There's nothing to laugh about when you realize that thousands of, and millions of people at this present moment think that they are righteous before a holy God, but they're completely deluded. This is exactly what verses 23 to 24 paint for us. A man who comes to the Bible, but he sees nothing and he does nothing. He doesn't see what the Bible says about himself. He's able to apply the Bible to others. He's able to, to share the gospel. He's able to tell others what they should do. But he doesn't see his own heart. He doesn't understand his own state. I would say this morning, this is why we desperately need the Scriptures. The Scriptures tell us who we really are. The Scriptures crush our deadly self-deceptions by first showing us Christ. It is Christ and His exaltation which gives us personal illumination. It is Christ who grants to us true self-perception. That's what the Gospel does. The Gospel tells you and I who we really are. Imagine a lighthouse that's, that's buried beneath rock. It's buried beneath the rock. Its light is on, but it's buried. And there's a boat at sea, and the oceans are black and imperceptible in the storm, and it cannot see the jagged rocks. And it is not until the lighthouse rises out of the rock that its light can now reveal that which was dark. The rocks can now be seen, and the boat can now be saved. And likewise, it is only through Christ's exaltation that anyone can have true spiritual illumination. So the gospel unfolds to you and I. Christ unfolds to you and I. 
the true state of our religion, the true state of our heart. But until the gospel is apprehended, until the gospel is absorbed and implanted, men and women will continue to think that north is south and south is north. They will think that good is bad and bad is good. They will think that they are good and God will accept them. But the cross undoes all self-delusion and gives a person proper self-perception. There are some who have heard what the cross says about them. They have seen what the cross has illumined in their hearts. But they have quickly tried to snuff out the light. Put the gospel back down. Stamp on it. Step on it. Because they have not liked what the gospel has shown. But James is telling us here in his illustration that it is nuts for us to forget who we are. It's delusional to have gone to the Word, seen who you are and what you're supposed to do, but then do nothing at all. To have seen Christ exalted, to have seen your sin exposed, and then to forget all that you've seen and and do nothing. This is spiritual suicide. It's delusional. But this still is not clear enough. It's not enough for us this morning. What is it that makes a man a poet and not a pretender? What makes a believer genuine in his belief? And what keeps him from becoming a deluded hearer? Okay, this is, at this point, I would say this is what's most preeminent this morning. This is what's most important to me. Because James gives the answer in verse 25. But the one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed and what he does. Go down a little bit and look at those words, effectual doer. And his NES says effectual doer. ESV says uh, a doer who acts. Right? That's really two nouns. But this is very important for us to understand at this point. NES is effectual doer, effectual doing. And I would simply define this as Effectual work is simply work that pleases God. It's work that pleases God. It is the kind of Christian service and obedience that is found to be acceptable and pleasing in the sight of God. So again, what is it that makes a believer's poetry acceptable to God? What is it that makes a person the workmanship of God? In stark contrast to the man who quickly looks in the mirror to see and forget, this man, he looks intently into the law of liberty. Now the word looks in verse 25, it means more than just a, a quick glance. It means, to bend, literally means to bend forward or, to, or near in order to search something more closely. But metaphorically, it's talking about this man whose gaze is just fixed, it's burning a hole In the scriptures, he cannot and will not take his eyes off what he is looking at. He is gazing with a a longing to understand what he is looking at. But it's not so much the gaze that is important. It's what he's gazing into. That's what's important. It's what he's gazing into. And what he's gazing into is what James calls for us the perfect law. The perfect law. I want to take this apart for a few moments. 
When the term law is usually used in the New Testament, it refers either to the Old Testament body of truth from Genesis to Malachi, or it refers to the objective rules and commands of God given in the Pentateuch by which all men must obey, but which all men have miserably failed in obeying. That's the law. The law is the regulatory principle of God. The law is the means by which God intends to govern the world, yet at the same time, it is this law that shows all men that they are sinners. Right? Now we understand, we understand that, but I want to briefly tell you what the law does. Because if we don't grasp this, we're not going to understand what James is saying. The law declares that God is in charge and must be worshipped. Exodus 20, verses 3 through 5. The law declares that the soul who sins will die. Ezekiel 18.4 says this. The law shuts up all men under sin. That is, it pronounces to every man and woman that they are broken, that they have broken the law, and they continue to break the law. You can look up Romans 11.32 and Galatians 3.22, and that's what they say. It says the law shuts up everybody. This same law tells us that we cannot be justified by obedience to it. Romans 3.20 says this, By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So Paul says, nobody can ever obey the law and therefore be justified before God. Nobody. In fact, what he is saying here is that the purpose of the law, it's to, to bereave us of all hope. It's to leave us completely destitute. It's to leave us completely and absolutely helpless and, in a sense, hopeless. But it doesn't supposed to leave us there. If the law does its work and we understand it the way we should, it becomes a great blessing. Galatians 3, 24-25 says, Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ that we may be justified by faith. Romans 10, 4 says that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So Christ makes it as if we had perfectly obeyed the law by believing in Christ who was, who was crucified for us, who bore our sin in His body on the cross, by believing in that Christ and what He's done, we receive His righteousness by faith. And then we're, we're, made, we're, we're made righteous before God. That's justification. We stand before God righteous because of what Christ has done. And what that means for us here in James 1.25 is that the perfect law means the complete law. The perfect law, the Greek there, it's the word teleos. It could be, could be end or, or perfection, completion of. Now we ask, what is it that makes it complete? What makes it complete? It's the modifier used right after it's not just the perfect law, but it's the law of liberty. It's the law of liberty. 
The word liberty means freedom, independence. And this is the exact opposite of what we just talked about the law being. The law is impossible to obey. It shuts up all men under sin. But now James says it is a liberating law. It is a law of freedom. And so we're now brought face to face with pretense and poetry. We're brought face to face with the man whose gaze brings him to action and the man whose look leads him to forgetfulness. The man who gazes must not only look hard and listen hard, but he must abide. And ESB says, abides. He abides in it, or ESV, he perseveres in it. And it refers to one who remains beside or near. And this marks the habit of this type of believer, one whose heart and mind are glued to the truth revealed in the Bible. But again, what is it that constrains this man? What is it that glues this man, that fixes this man? What is he gazed on? James pictures this individual. He's bent over the mirror and he is gripped by what he saw. So gripped and stirred that he would not leave what he saw, would not forget what he saw. But what he saw was emblazoned upon his retina. It was emblazoned upon his brain and it was engraved upon his heart. This man, this effectual doer, he is gripped not by what he must do, but what Christ has done. This man, he's utterly undone by the law of liberty. John 1.17 says that the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. The believer who looks intently into the law of liberty and stays by its side becomes an effectual doer because they have realized the grace and truth of Christ. And so it's the, the gospel. It's the law of liberty. That's, the, that's what makes a man, that's what makes a woman effectual in his doing. So James 1.25 labors to show us that effectual works will be the result of salvation. So this is, for me, the key phrase this morning. The force behind all doing is having been undone. The force behind all of our doing as believers is having been undone by the gospel. The gospel undoes you. If you have not been undone by the gospel, James says, all are doing, it's, it's delusional at best if we're doing anything at all. If you're not doing anything, first of all, it's because you, you, the gospel has not undone you, has not permeated your heart. If you're, if you're doing Christian things, but you, the gospel is not empowering it, your doing is not effectual. It's in vain. If you're familiar with Isaiah 6, which comes up often in in our preaching, Isaiah chapter 6 serves to me as a tremendous illustration of this. What was it that made Isaiah a doer of the Word? What was was it that made Isaiah say, Here here am I. Send me. It It was being undone. He was undone. The holiness of Christ, the exaltation of Christ on the throne, flooded Isaiah with the knowledge and the reality of who he really was. So when Isaiah saw that vision of God seated on the throne, he didn't didn't say, look how good I am. Look at the holiness and the purity that resides in me. 
We know what he said. He said, woe is me. Which means, woe is, I am damned. I am cursed. I am undone by the presence and the holiness of the living God. Woe is me. But Isaiah wasn't consumed. He didn't immediately combust or turn into a ball of flames. Instead, as he pronounced condemnation on himself rightly at seeing the holiness of God, the mercy of Christ was extended to him. Immediately. The angel came forward and with that hot coal, cleansing his lips symbolically, atoning, purifying him of his sin. Isaiah was undone by the holiness of God and by the mercy of God. And it was when Isaiah received this grace and this mercy that Isaiah said, Here am I. I want to be a doer. I want to live for you. It was God's infinite grace to Isaiah that made Isaiah an effectual doer for God's glory. I wonder perhaps if if this conversation ensued. I know it didn't, hypothetically though. Where God could have said, Isaiah... You want to be a doer. Do you know what's going to happen to you? Yes, Lord, but your mercy has been extended to me. Isaiah, you're going to be scorned and you're going to be mocked and, and you're going to be rejected. Lord, but I'm constrained because of your mercy. Isaiah, for this message you will preach, you will be sawn in two. But Lord, this is nothing. You have, you have delivered me. You have rescued me from eternal condemnation. And I'm, I'm constrained, not just under external compulsion, but voluntarily, because of your grace and mercy, to preach the gospel, regardless of the cost of my physical being. Because I've been undone. I've been undone by the gospel. Before one can be a doer, One must be undone. James says, knowing the gospel, hearing the word preached, reading the word, and not being undone. It's delusional. To understand the infinite grace poured out through Christ to you and I, and yet to be unmoved. It's delusion. But likewise, to do before you've been undone means that you're seeking to earn favor and merit with God by your works. And so James says, do not do until you've been undone. Do not try and serve and do things for God until God has served you through the gospel. Now, I talked about this before, but this is by far, I think, one of the biggest dangers at Cornerstone Bible Church. Biggest danger at Cornerstone Bible Church is that we're extremely zealous for doing. I think, but for, per capita for this church, I mean, we outdo so many other churches, right? You know, we're like the 100-pound man, you know, and then there's other churches with, you know, 1,000 people, so they're like the 300-pound man. But according to weight, we, out, we outbench far many other congregations and churches. We can lift way more weight. We can do so many more things. We're out, we're out serving in so many ways, 
But the zeal, but the danger for cornerstone is that there's zeal without knowledge. Now what I mean is this. Your service and your duty, in a sense, should not exceed your understanding and grasp of the gospel. So let's illustrate this with the new believer. Sometimes we see these brand new believers. And what happens is, they're so undone and they're, they're so on fire that they're just out doing everything. They're, they're going door to door. They're preaching the gospel. They're, pre- they're preaching the gospel to their parents. Boldly, unashamedly. They're doing all this ministry. That's good. But there's a sense where the mature believer steps back and he looks at that and he says, I praise God what God's doing. But he knows that there's a little bit of zeal without knowledge. Why? Because the gospel, if you will, it's still peripheral. It's not central yet. The gospel, it's, 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 he believes the gospel and, and Christ is in his life and he's on the page now. But what overshadows Christ really is his own life. Look, what, look what's happened to me. I was going to hell. Look what's happened to me. And now, look what I need to do. And I'm doing all these ministries. I'm doing all this serving. But the question is, why? What's motivating this? What's motivating us to, to serve and minister and do what we're doing? What's motivating our missions this summer? What's motivating short-term ministry? What's motivating uh, OC team and Czech Republic, Kazakhstan and Malaysia and, and Mexico? Is it really the gospel? Is it really because Christ is completely central? Is it because as a church and as individuals we're so moved and amazed and marveling at the gospel of the grace of God? The exhortation this morning is to make the cross, the law of liberty, the gospel, central in your lives. See, the gospel is not for unbelievers. And the gospel is not for new believers. The gospel is for all believers. The gospel is the center of what the Christian life is. The gospel is the center of what a Christian is. And I would say this, sanctification is nothing other than the cross moving from peripheral to central. The Christian grows in his love for God and his motivation to serve God as he understands the gospel more. Ministry is simply understanding the gospel and understanding how to apply the gospel to your life. Glorification is ultimately when we have completely been undone and all sin has been purged through the presence of Christ, through the gospel of Christ. And when we're in heaven praising and worshiping God forever, the gospel is not on the peripheral. It's not, the cross isn't over by the tree of life. The, the cross, Christ and Him crucified, as, he's, as we look upon Him with His nail-pierced hands and feet, He is central. It is the gospel, why? It is the gospel which will motivate us and fuel us to worship God forever. And so I propose to you this morning, it is greater understanding of the gospel. It is when the gospel at this church becomes even more centralized that it will not just be serving, 
but it will be effectual ministry. When we become a, a church, and I, let, me, let me be careful here and say, I know that the gospel is what we long for. I know the gospel is what we understand. I know the gospel is what we're preaching. I know the gospel is what you believe. But it's the gospel central. And it is when, and it is as the cross, as the gospel becomes completely central in this church, that we will become effectual in our ministry. Not effectual in what we can see with our eyes. Not necessarily more people getting saved, but more joy, more mercy extended to one another, more grace, more speaking with grace, more exaltation of Christ from all of us from this pulpit in our praises and our words. As the gospel becomes more central, our doing will become more effectual. Pretense will become poetry as the gospel becomes most magnificent in your life. And so we see the infinite difference between pretense and poetry. It's the gospel. Before I conclude, I want to head something off that could become a danger of preaching this sermon. It could be that all this doing and being undone talk could backfire and cause some of you to sit and wait for a, for a divine poof. And all of a sudden you become a doer. But being undone by the gospel, isn't, it's not a shazam. Okay? That's not how the gospel works. Yes, spiritually, it's all the work of God. It's all the work of grace. It's all monergism. It's all the Holy Spirit. We do none of it. It's all God. But we read the Gospel. We must respond to it. The Bible is real. Sin is real. Hell is real. Jesus Christ is real. But when people read the Bible and don't do, it's because they think the Bible is fictional. That's what they're saying. They're saying the Bible is a book of fiction. Now some would say, no, I'm not thinking that way. But when, you, when you're confronted with truth, with life and death truth, you do something, you act, you change, you get desperate and, and work and seek ways to fix the problem. If the issue is drastic, you take drastic means, take drastic steps. People do drastic things to stay alive, right? I remember that man, I think it was a couple years ago, maybe three years ago, this guy who, who goes out, hiking and climbing all by himself, and he's bouldering, and he gets his arm stuck in that boulder. You remember that? And he was out all alone in Utah, no help, no cell phone. All he had was a pocket knife. He says, you know what? I'm going to die. There's nothing I can do. If I just sit here and do nothing, I perish. And so he took out his pocket knife, and I'll try not to be gruesome, but you know what he did? He began cutting away at his own flesh until he severed and cut his own arm off. Because he knew if he just sat there and said, yep, what can I do? Then it was over. But he did something. See, our world lives life backwards. They fret and panic over appearance. They pine away over relationships with the opposite sex. They physically starve themselves for the sake of appearance. But you tell them their soul is going to be judged by a holy God. Ah, fairy tales. But even within the church, intellectually we believe the Bible. But spiritually, we believe that the Bible is sometimes fairy tales. No one reads a fairy tale and then goes and tries to apply it, right? No one reads a fairy tale tale and then goes and, and tries to do it. Because they know that it's a fairy tale. But if we know the gospel, if we know what the gospel means, and yet do nothing, 
we say that the cross is a fairy tale. So saints, my prayer is that you would be undone, done by the gospel. That you would let this book, which unfolds the magnitude of God and the centrality of the cross of Christ, that you would let it strip you, you would let it undo you, and that you would let God's mercy be infused into your heart, into your life, and that you become effectual doers. Lastly, I just want to tell you, you know, so much exhortation, you know, so much admonishment, but at the same time to acknowledge that Christ is being exalted by you, that the gospel so evident in your lives, the gospel so evident in this church. So I would, I would, I would loathe myself after this if people went away, you know, just distraught over their salvation or just distraught by all their labors. So I'm constrained, you know, to encourage you and remind you that Christ is being exalted in your lives. That the cross is being lifted up in your lives. That I see, as Colossians 3.16 says, the word of Christ, the gospel, richly dwelling within you. And I see saints growing and in, in, in abiding in the, in the gospel. I see saints growing in, in ministry, which is the ability to apply the gospel to themselves and to others. I see you serving each other. Uh, a small groups, your, your ability not to just rebuke and confront, but to, to minister the gospel to people's lives and to help them, encourage them to be men and women who live in the power of the gospel. So we have much to be thankful for. May the Lord allow the cross of Christ to move in all of us from central, I mean from peripheral to, to the center. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace again. And thank you for the power of the cross. Thank you for the reality of the gospel. That Lord, this truth undoes us that we might be effectual doers. Lord, let us move away from pretense, Lord, to poetry. Let our lives be that which manifests that we are your workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, born again in Christ Jesus, made whole, made new, made effectual in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So, Lord, let the Lamb be our greatest longing. Let the cross, Lord, be our greatest concern. We thank you so much for your goodness. Thank you again for Cornerstone Bible Church and the work that you're doing. Lord, you are sanctifying her. You are making her love the gospel and be fixed, making the gospel be the center. Do it all the more for your glory, O Lord. In your name we pray.